I next met with Dr. Eric Weiner for his take on breast cancer data sets from ASCO, and he began by running down the first few oral presentations, all of which focused on local therapy, beginning with an NSABP study of sentinel node biopsy. B32 didn't provide any surprises. B32 was a trial conducted by the NSABP in women who had negative sentinel biopsies and randomized them to a full lymph node dissection or stopping after that negative sentinel biopsy. And I think to no one's surprise, it showed no difference in outcome. Women, of course, who had the full node dissection were more likely to have complications related to the node dissection, but no difference in disease-free survival, no difference in overall survival. And I think that this paper essentially says if you have a negative sentinel node biopsy, there is absolutely no reason to consider any further surgery. So the next two papers deal with two trials for the American College of Surgeons, Z10 and Z11. What came out of that? So I think that these are both important trials and important trials for a community oncologist to be familiar with. Z10 was a large study involving over 5,000 women where they looked at two separate issues. They looked at the prognostic implication of finding isolated tumor cells with IHC in a sentinel node. And separate from that, they looked at the value of finding IHC-detected cells within the bone marrow. So let's take the lymph node first. What they demonstrated in a very large group of patients is that women who had lymph node involvement had a worse outcome. Lymph node involvement defined as seen on H&E had a worse outcome than patients who did not have lymph node involvement. They found that women who had micrometastatic involvement as found by H&E, so standard staining, had a somewhat more worrisome prognosis compared with those that didn't, but that there was no prognostic implication associated with finding isolated tumor cells by IHC on a sentinel node biopsy. So in my view, the practice of performing IHC routinely on a sentinel node biopsy should go by the wayside as a result of this study because if there is no prognostic implication, and remember that the investigators in the trial were blinded to these results, so it's not as if their treatment was adjusted based on finding isolated tumor cells. So if, in fact, there is no impact on prognosis, I don't see why any of us want to know if there are isolated tumor cells in the sentinel biopsy. And I think that there is perhaps only one exception to that. And that is, if for whatever reason a pathologist feels that he or she is seeing something and wants to define it further, or if perhaps they're seeing a patient with invasive lobular cancer where it's often very hard with routine H&E to pick out tumor cells and they want to use IHC there, that's a different story. But for the typical patient who has a negative sentinel biopsy by H&E, there is no role at this point in time for further staining. How about the Z11 study? So the Z11 study was a study that I think in many ways was a bold study and was a study, unfortunately, that didn't ever reach its accrual goal. 
It was a study in approximately 900 women where women who had a positive sentinel biopsy, and this was defined as H&E positivity. These are not patients who had isolated tumor cells only. They're patients who either had a micromet or a macromet in the sentinel lymph node. And those women were randomized to having a full lymph node dissection or having no further surgery after their sentinel biopsy. Again, women who had biopsy-proven disease in the axilla. Now, an important eligibility criterion to participate in the study was that women had to be having conservative surgery and radiation. This is something that I hadn't picked up on initially, but all of these women were women who were having conservative surgery and radiation. And as a result, I think we cannot necessarily apply the findings that I'm going to speak about to women who have a mastectomy. And the reason for that is that the low portion of the axilla is actually included often in the radiation field. But what they found is that women who had a sentinel node biopsy only, who didn't have additional surgery, had no higher rate of in-breast recurrence and no higher rate of axillary recurrence than women who had a full lymph node dissection. Again, it's important to point out that all of these women received radiation, and so in all likelihood there was at least some amount of radiation administered to the lower portion of the axilla. It's also worth pointing out that among the women who had the full lymph node dissection, 27% had additional positive lymph nodes found at the time of surgery So in general, this was a group of women who were at relatively low risk of having additional disease there. And so from my standpoint, this is by no means a study that says we should abandon node dissections in all women who have a positive sentinel lymph node. But it is a study that says that if you are faced with a woman who has a positive sentinel lymph node biopsy, who is planning to have a lumpectomy and radiation, and who is at relatively low risk of having additional disease in the axilla, that that may well be a woman where you can safely omit a full lymph node dissection. And, of course, the one added caveat is that if you as a medical oncologist think that you need more information about the lymph nodes to make a decision about systemic therapy, then that also would be a reason to proceed with a full node dissection though most of the time we don't need that added information to make the decision. How about the so-called target study? I actually interviewed my old friend Mike Baum, who presented this data at ASCO, and it was kind of cool. It was like the thing that happened with the Yakotype node positive thing where it was presented and published simultaneously in The Lancet. Can you talk about what they saw there and what you thought about it? Yeah, so the target study is a study where they used intraoperative radiotherapy in place of external beam radiation. And they looked at this in women who had DCIS, again, randomizing between the intraoperative therapy and external beam radiation. They did not see any significant difference in outcome between the two groups which, at least on the surface, would suggest that a targeted, more limited, less time-consuming therapy might be as effective as giving external beam radiotherapy. The problem, in my mind here, is that the follow-up is very short. And 
Many of these women had only been followed for a couple of years. They're reporting a result. The estimate of recurrence in the breast was 0.31% versus 0.29%. So these are both very similar numbers and very low numbers, but it's only with two-year follow-up. So in my mind, this is not a treatment that we should all be embracing at the moment, but it is a treatment that we should pay attention to, and it's a study result that we should follow. And I think that it is quite likely that in the years ahead that for some patients with breast cancer, that these more targeted, localized procedures will be the way to go. How about the presentation by Chris Twelves, the so-called EMBRACE study, looking at aribulin? Yeah, so aribulin is a natural product. It comes from a sea sponge. It is another agent that affects microtubules. And in this study, which was sponsored by the company ISAI, or ASAI, E-I-S-A-I, they randomized women to receive either aribulin or to receive the treatment that the doctor felt was most appropriate for the patient. In most cases, that was chemotherapy. In a few cases, that was hormonal therapy. They also gave the option of best supportive care, although as far as I can tell, patients did not choose that option. And among the patients who received the aribulin, there was a small and not statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival But there was indeed an improvement in overall survival, an improvement that was in the range of two to three months. And because of that improvement in survival, the study received a great deal of attention. And I think that there is a reasonable chance that given an improvement in survival in a study such as this, that there will be an approval for aribulin in the United States in the months ahead. I think, of course, we'll have to see, and this is going to be reviewed by ODAC and by the FDA, I assume. What's interesting is that most of our focus in the last few years has been on developing targeted therapies. This is not a targeted therapy. This is a chemotherapy agent. And I personally think that this may be one of the last chemotherapy agents to be approved for breast cancer, since this isn't where the main thrust of our research is. That said, it is a drug that appears to be relatively well-tolerated, and the hope is that it will add to the group of drugs that we have for treating women with metastatic breast cancer. What about, more specifically, the side effects? I mean, anti-tubulin, I'm thinking neuropathy. What did they see? So there was some neuropathy. There was some myelosuppression. There seems to be some debate about how much hair loss there was, at least partially, because many of the women came into the trial already with alopecia. So I'm not entirely clear on the extent of hair loss, although my sense is that it is less than with drugs like paclitaxel or docetaxel. Oribulin was associated with a 7 to 8% incidence of grade 3 or 4 neuropathy, I don't know how frequent grade 2 neuropathy was, and the reason I point that out is that grade 2 neuropathy is sometimes bad enough that it bothers a patient. My general sense is that this is probably a little less neurotoxic than some of the other agents that we have, but it is still a side effect that bears watching. 
So let's move on to the issue of PARP inhibitors. And there was a paper 1018 looking at Olaparib, which has been reported previously by itself, now looking at it with paclitaxel. So this was a study that was presented by Rebecca Dent at Sunnybrook in Toronto, trying to combine Olaparib or AZD2281 with paclitaxel. Now, let's just take a step back and talk for a minute about the PARP inhibitors. There are four or five different PARP inhibitors that are now either in clinical trials or about to be in clinical trials. These PARP inhibitors in women who have BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations are thought to create a state of so-called synthetic lethality. Remember that BRCA1 and BRCA2 are involved in repair that is needed as a result of DNA damage. And when the repair that is offered by BRCA1 and 2 is dysfunctional, then PARP becomes important as a way of repairing DNA that is not otherwise repaired by BRCA1 and 2. And so the PARP inhibitors work by knocking out another way in which DNA can be repaired. And I think of it very much like a four-legged table. You knock one leg out and the table stands. Imagine that's BRCA1 and BRCA2. You knock a second leg out, think of that as PARP, and the table falls over. So Olaparib is a drug that has very clearly been effective in patients who have BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations and have associated breast or ovarian cancer. And in this study, what they tried to do was combine the PARP inhibitor with paclitaxel, and unfortunately, they were unable to do this. And they ended up treating a relatively small number of patients. I believe the total was under 30. And they found that the toxicity from the combined therapy was really prohibitive. This has been a problem combining Olaparib with other chemotherapy agents as well, we have been involved in a phase one trial with cisplatin and elaparib where it's been challenging to administer the doses that we had initially intended. And Elise Cohn at the NCI was involved in a phase one trial of elaparib with carboplatin, and my understanding is had a similar experience. What's interesting, of course, is that another related compound, BSI-201, which is also thought to be a PARP inhibitor, has been combined very successfully with carboplatin and gemcitabine in a randomized phase two and now recently completed phase three trial. And in that experience, what the investigators have reported is that there does not appear to be an increase in toxicity combining BSI with the chemotherapy. That may be because it's a different agent And it may also be because it's an intravenous agent that is administered twice a week and apparently has a relatively short half-life, whereas Olaparib tends to be given daily and has a longer half-life. But I think this is an exciting area, but one where we clearly need to learn more. The other thing with Olaparib, and we talked about this in the ovarian cancer part of this program, there were data presented again on Olaparib without chemo, monotherapy, And they saw responses in ovarian cancer, not just with BRCA patients, but also non-BRCA, which was really fascinating. 
but they saw zero responses in triple negative breast cancer and BRCA breast cancer. Any comments on that? Yeah. So there are two other studies that have shown responses in patients with BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations and metastatic breast cancer to single-agent olaparib. In the study that you're referring to, which was presented by Karen Gelman, they did see responses in sporadic ovarian cancer, which was very, very encouraging with single-agent olaparib. They didn't see anything in patients with triple-negative breast cancer with single-agent olaparib. And although I found the details of the study a little bit unclear, my sense is that they didn't see any frank partial responses, even among patients with mutations in that group as well, but it was a relatively small number of patients. I think it is pretty clear, though, that there is some activity of olaparib in women with metastatic breast cancer who have mutations, even if it wasn't seen in that study. So there were a couple of papers looking at bevacizumab that I wanted to ask you about. First, Adam Brofsky reporting more data from the Ribbon 2 study. Yeah, so in this report, they looked at bevacizumab as a second-line regimen in women who had not previously received bevacizumab and demonstrated that giving it in a second-line setting, there was still an improvement in progression-free survival, an improvement that seemed to hold up with each of the various chemotherapy drugs that were given as part of the study. I think it's hard to interpret this study without turning to the next study, which was Joyce O'Shaughnessy's meta-analysis of the overall survival data from the three first-line bevacizumab trials. And in that study, and this is a meta-analysis of data from the Avado study, in which women were randomized to docetaxel with or without bevacizumab, to the ECOG study, in which women were randomized to paclitaxel with or without bevacizumab, and finally the Ribbon-1 study, which looked at a number of different chemotherapy agents with or without bevacizumab. So in this meta-analysis, they looked at both improvements in progression-free survival and improvements in overall survival. They found, as one would expect, that there was an improvement in progression-free survival, since that's what each of the studies individually showed. But unfortunately, there was no improvement in overall survival Sometimes it's argued that the reason we don't see survival benefits in the first-line setting in patients with metastatic breast cancer is that it is statistically much harder to see a survival benefit because of the length of survival and because of the fact that women are often receiving subsequent therapies that may dampen the effect of an earlier treatment. But here... This was a more than adequately powered analysis that should have been able to see a very small improvement in overall survival, and yet in spite of that, it didn't. And so I think it leaves us all scratching our heads a bit as to why we see this improvement in progression-free survival with bevacizumab, but no improvement in overall survival. But that is the result at the moment. And when you are faced with a new patient who has metastatic breast cancer, and you're going to be giving her chemotherapy, the decision to add bevacizumab should not be a decision that's based on hoping that she will live longer. It's a decision that needs to focus on the improvement in progression-free survival only. Well, I guess also they report increased incidence of responses. Do you consider that clinically meaningful? Well, so for a patient who is highly symptomatic, a response 
can translate into an improvement in quality of life. And it's interesting you bring that up because in my mind, the time when we want to focus on using bevacizumab is in that first-line patient who has either a very high disease burden or a great deal of symptoms where controlling the cancer for longer or getting a response is going to lead to an improvement in quality of life. Since at the moment, I don't think we have reason to believe we're going to extend a woman's life. And other situations where there's not that kind of urgency, how do you think through the risks and benefits and how do you make the clinical decision? And to what extent do pragmatic factors like cost and reimbursement fit in in that situation? Yeah. So I think that for the patient who is not highly symptomatic and who doesn't have a substantial disease burden where you're convinced that controlling the cancer for longer with that first-line regimen is going to be better for the patient, there I think it's a much harder call. And I think you have to pay attention to the side effects that can arise from bevacizumab. They are not horrific side effects by any means. But bevacizumab does add to the side effect profile and the side effect burden with chemotherapy. And there I think that each clinician is left talking with his or her patient and making a decision, but by no means do I think that these studies support the notion that bevacizumab is the standard of care. I think it is a reasonable treatment approach, but I don't think that it's something that every woman needs to receive. And I guess I would think of this very much like the decision as to whether to give combination chemotherapy versus a single agent. I don't know that the choices are so very different here. My hope, of course, and I think this is everyone's hope, is that we are going to define the subgroup of patients who get the biggest benefit from bevacizumab and who may actually get a survival benefit from bevacizumab. But at the moment, finding those patients has been elusive. And just to address your questions, how does this relate to cost and reimbursement? Well, I think that you know, we'd all have to be living with our heads, you know, buried in the sand, not to recognize that cost and reimbursement do play a role. If, in fact, a physician is practicing in a location where it is unclear whether she or he can get reimbursed for bevacizumab, that is clearly going to affect the decision-making, particularly with a drug that isn't improving overall survival and where the benefit from a quality-of-life standpoint is questionable. And while I feel pretty strongly that cost is something that we as clinicians should think about and talk about as a whole and as a society, I tend not to bring cost into the room with the patient unless the patient is concerned about the costs that he or she will encounter. There were a couple of papers presented on a really fascinating concept combining two new agents. One, a paper from Kathy Miller, a phase one, two study looking at this, and then another paper looking at biomarkers in patients. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So these were two different papers. One of the papers was a paper from Kathy Miller that looked at the combination of TDM1, which is an antibody drug conjugate. So TDM1 is trastuzumab that is linked to a small amount of a metansinoid, which is a chemotherapeutic agent. And the way TDM1 works is that the Herceptin moiety that is part of TDM1 binds to the HER2-positive cancer cell. 
the molecule is then internalized, the chemotherapy is released, and it delivers in a very targeted fashion its cytotoxic effect. TDM1 in two phase two trials has been shown to be quite effective based on response rates of about 35% in women who have highly refractory disease. In Kathy's study, they combined TDM1 with pertuzumab. Pertuzumab is another monoclonal antibody that binds to a different site on HER2 and prevents the heterodimerization of HER2 with either HER1 or HER3, probably most importantly, HER3. And in their pilot study, what they found was that the two drugs, pertuzumab and TDM1, could be given together safely. I think the experience is really too small to say anything about efficacy, apart from the fact that the combination appeared to be effective and response rates were similar to what is seen with TDM1 alone, but that does not mean that the combination might not be better, particularly in a different setting. The other paper, which came, I believe, from colleagues in Spain, looked at biomarkers that were associated with effectiveness of the combination of trastuzumab and pertuzumab. And there, they found, I thought, relatively little in terms of the biomarker analysis, but of course, the numbers were small. But they suggested that patients who had low mRNA levels of HER2 and HER3 seemed to have a better outcome with treatment And in truth, I'm not quite sure what to make of this. I think it and other potential predictors of outcome need to be looked at in larger studies. 